A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Yeah, so Conrad has a student who was doing some work in this harbour and she videoed what happened when the tide came in on a really hot day and it was like the crabs, as the water came across the sand, like the crabs were running away from the water. So that's the kind of phenomenon we're trying to, we're trying to capture here. Kia ora. Hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clark and Cannon Thane. Today, two stories on the coming impacts of our changing climate. Later, I speak to a researcher who's investigating the topic of managed retreat from marae threatened by sea level rise. But first, that's the voice of Dr. Rebecca Gladstone-Gallagher. I am a um, research fellow at the University of Auckland. I'm a marine ecologist who focuses on understanding how ecosystems function and how they recover from disturbances and changes. And the change Rebecca is looking at for her current research is temperature. Today we're just going out to deploy some temperature loggers. Rebecca and I, along with her collaborator Professor Conrad Pilditch from the University of Waikato, are out on the Ōmokoroa Peninsula in the Tauranga Harbour, walking down to the sandy estuary. We're doing a project looking at how heat waves affect intertidal ecosystems like shellfish beds and we're deploying some temperature loggers to get a handle on how frequent and intense these events might be um, when we have both marine heat waves and also atmospheric heat waves that heat up the air. I should add, this recording took place in mid-January. And as I drive to meet Rebecca and Conrad, the local radio station on in my car is warning of a hot day ahead. Good morning, it's five past ten. Well, today, fine and significantly hot. Along with Actually, it was the day after the Hungatonga Hungaha'apai volcano erupted, and the day that Cyclone Cody was due to send a heap of swell towards the northern New Zealand coast. So, it's hot. Forecasted to hit 31 degrees Celsius. And that's not a coincidence. Rebecca has chosen this week to put out these temperature loggers because of the significantly hot weather forecast and because of the mid-afternoon low tide times. We're trying to capture what this might mean um, in terms of heating up the sand flat in the middle of the day. It bakes the sediment. Then as the water comes across the sand flat, it kind of heats up as it's coming across. So it's like bath water coming across the sand flat. So these loggers that we're putting out today, they're kind of at a really high frequency. They're going to measure temperature every two minutes so that we can look at these spikes in temperature when you've got low tides coinciding with uh, really hot afternoons. These ones will only stay out for maybe a week, whereas the ones that are already out there, they're out there for a, a whole year. So alongside this extreme temperature measurement, Rebecca also has a long-term temperature logger out at the site. Instead of taking readings every two minutes, it collects data every 20 minutes. These can connect with Rebecca's phone. So today she will also locate that logger, which she's got the GPS coordinates for, and download the data. The point of the extreme temperature loggers she's deploying today is to walk a hot summer mile in the shoes of the shellfish that live in the sediment. 
So we're kind of placing them in the middle of cockle beds because we're trying to get an idea of, you know, this from the perspective of what a shellfish sees. We're also going to do a few different tidal elevations. We're going to do kind of low tide, um, middle and a bit upper to see, you know, how different um, places in the estuary might heat up. And that's related to how that exposed sand bed heats up during the day. Yeah, so you might expect that if it's exposed for a longer period, then it's going to have more impacts than something that's a bit lower in the tide. And so you might get some areas that are refuges from from these impacts and you might get some areas that are really, really um, impacted. Important because it could have a major impact on the cockles. These animals have also seen um, die-offs in kind of recent times in North Island estuaries. So, for example, in the Whangateo estuary up in uh, Northland, uh, there was a big die-off in 2009 caused by a heatwave event. And basically the die-off occurred because extreme low tides coincided with very, very hot days, um, afternoon very hot afternoon temperatures and a number of factors led to a massive mortality event. So we're trying to see, you know, from the perspective of these shellfish, how frequent these events might be um, and how kind of relevant they might be to shaping these, these populations. And Rebecca says, cockles play a number of important roles in estuaries. Well, they're suspension feeders, so they, they filter the water column and that's where they get their food from. So just by feeding, they actually have a really important ecological role in, in filtering the water column. But not only that, they kind of are really important in controlling nutrient cycles. Uh, they kind of form this layer between the sediment and the water, and they, they kind of transfer nutrients from the water into the sediments, and they play a really important ecological role. But not only that, they kind of are really important culturally um, in terms of the production of kaimoana. A lot of local communities rely on cockle beds um, as a food source. And the reason that they're so ecologically important is because they occur in such high biomasses. So, you know, on one of these sand flats, in some parts of it, they can be up to 5,000 cockles per metre squared. So if you scale that up to a whole entire uh, sand flat, that's a lot of cockles. That's a huge amount of biomass. And so just by being in these big, this this amount of biomass they can have a huge role on the ecosystem. So it's an issue then when we get these large die-offs right that's going to severely impact an estuary. Well the die-offs are important because they you know they remove large biomasses of these animals from the intertidal sand flats and that, that has an ecological consequence but probably of greater concern is that they they don't seem to recover very quickly and we have examples where these populations haven't recovered even though you would expect them to recover within you know five or six years based on the way that their population grows and if you just estimated how long it takes a cockle to to be an adult they haven't recovered in that amount of time and and we have an example up in the Whangateo estuary where 12 years after a large die-off they still haven't recovered um, to the same sizes that they were before so they've recovered in their density but there's no very large um, cockles in the ecosystem anymore and that's concerning because the large ones are the ones that are are having the biggest impact on the ecosystem. 
And these recovery lags can occur for a number of reasons. They can be because, you know, there's no more supply of, of larvae to recruit the area, but they can also be because the area is impacted by other stresses and they can also be because losing a lot of animals really suddenly just changes the way the ecosystem works and this can set up blockages to recovery and we don't really have a good handle on why this is happening with cockle beds and that's part of the research that we're doing is to try and understand what is kind of driving these recovery lags so that we can actually inform how we might manage those events in the future. For this investigation, Rebecca will be looking at data from about 25 locations all over the country. Luckily, Rebecca doesn't have to deploy all of them herself. We have a network of collaborators all over the place, you know, from Northland to uh, Southland, and we've just shipped them the loggers and we've, you know, had some discussions around what are the kind of good sites to choose for this, you know, in terms of looking at this from the perspective of the shellfish um, and, and what tidal heights and things, and the, our collaborators are putting them out for us. But all the data comes back to you? Yep, all the data will come back to us and potentially uh, might be used in several different ways and also communicated to local communities around where we've put the loggers out. One of the ways this data will be used is to take these point measurements and scale them up. To do this, Rebecca is working with an American collaborator, Professor David Weathy from the University of South Carolina. He is trying to develop climate forecasts for intertidal areas. He is an expert using satellite imagery and data to upscale these phenomena to whole estuaries. Conrad, who is the leader of the marine science and aquaculture team at the University of Waikato, explains further about the potential of this satellite work. Dave Weathers has been doing this work from space on the east and west coast of the US, mainly in rocky shore systems, and then also working with people in Spain to look at climate change shifts and how temperature is driving changes in species, um, and then again linking local measurements to these satellite measures. So that allow us to collect much higher frequency data at larger scales and inform what's happening in our estuaries as both the air and the water temperatures are heating. So the loggers that you put out are only going to measure like a point in the estuary. But across all of the different collaborators across New Zealand, you're gathering all those points of data that then feed back into this satellite picture. You can scale it across. Yeah, the thermal imaging. So we'll know what's happening at one place for a long period of time and that will allow us to extrapolate in space uh, in the estuary. So, yeah. That sounds really powerful because I'm just looking out here and this is a massive estuary. Yeah, so Tauranga Harbour, about 65% of the area, some 242 square kilometres uh, when the tide's in and then about 60% of that area is intertidal. Intertidal areas have water over them at high tide and then there's sand or mud flats at low tide. But not all intertidal areas are equal. The thermal regime will depend how close you are to the channels, but also how close you are to the entrances as well, because the water's cooler offshore as it's coming in, and then it heats up over these large areas. And the water that we're looking at here around Omokaroa, the modelling that we've done, shows that the water in this part of the harbour will spend probably 10 or 14 days in this part of the harbour before it makes its way back out to the, to the open coast through the Mount Monganui entrance. 
Plus, there will be other things to consider in the intertidal estuary climate forecasts. We've got a warming world and warming seas, but we've also got um, sea level rise as well. So when we look out at these habitats through here, you know, if we have, say, a half metre rise in sea level in Taronga Harbour, then we're going to lose a lot of this uh, intertidal area. We'll suddenly become subtidal, have very different regimes, very different communities. And then you can see as we're looking out through here, the wading birds feeding on the worms of the shellfish as the tide drops, will that lifestyle effectively be squeezed into a smaller amount of space? We've reached the site now, but the tide is still looking a bit high. It's possible that the tsunami from the volcano erupting or the incoming swells from Cyclone Cody have impacted it a bit. But we wait out anyway to find the long-term logger. So are we looking for a post, like Conrad's holding? Yeah. Yeah, a little post, but it's only protruding about five centimetres out of the sediment because we're really interested in really what's going on at that sediment water interface, what the animal actually experiences rather than what's happening in the deeper water. So Conrad, you're holding the equipment for the day. Yes, a mallet and um, some stakes with the, with the loggers attached to them. And so we'll be going out and then we'll just pop these into the sediment and bang them down so they're a couple of centimetres above the sediment surface and the other one will be a couple of centimetres below the sediment surface. We find the long-term logger and the tide has dropped enough, so it's time to deploy the extreme temperature loggers. Two will go at each site, one that sits within the sediment and one just above. So here I go. Rebecca gets to work with the mallet. Conrad says that while work has been done on rocky intertidal zones, he's not aware of another data set like this on these sandy sediment intertidal regions. The information will be given to local communities so that they can see exactly what the situation is in their estuaries. But it will also help inform other science. You'll see in the literature there's a lot of interest, obviously, in climate change and how that affects organism behaviour, their performance, their ability to grow and feed. And a lot of these studies tend to get done in, in labs and in controlled temperature rooms, and they effectively have clam bakes where they put them in at very warm temperatures. But without the contextualisation of what those animals are actually seeing in the natural world, it's very hard to design those experiments and think about, well, what am I trying to replicate in the lab and is it relevant because you could either get it too low or way too high and you go, well, all the animals die at at X degree temperature, but they never see that thermal regime um, in the field. So, um, so yeah, just contextualising what that thermal stressor looks like you know, what are those peak temperatures? And then we can begin to think about how that thermal stress may interact with other stresses that are in the system. So whether it's increased mud, decreased feeding time, all of those other things which will impact on, on the animals themselves. With their work done at this site, Rebecca and Conrad head on to their next one in Tauranga Harbour. Rebecca's collaborators also chose significantly hot weeks with low tides in the middle of the day to place their loggers. And they too have been saving data from long-term loggers. So far, Rebecca has been archiving this big hoard of data. But with the field season coming to a close, she will soon start the analysis to figure out exactly what kind of extremes the cockles are experiencing. Thanks to Dr Rebecca Gladstone-Gallagher, Research Fellow in Marine Science at the University of Auckland, and Professor Conrad Bilditch of the University of Waikato. Warming oceans, warming temperatures, rising sea levels. This is the new normal. We can't choose to opt out of climate change. It's here, now.
So what we need to do is think about it. We need to engage. Alongside working to cut emissions, we also need to figure out what changes are coming our way and proactively respond. Our next story is about just that. Kia ora koutou ko nungataha te maunga, ko te aroa te waka, ko tono hopu te marae, no rotura a hau, ko Akota Bailey Winiata tōku ingoa. Kia ora, my name is Akota Bailey Winiata. I'm a PhD student at the University of Waikato in the School of Science. My PhD is looking at managed retreat for Māori communities in a climate change context. Though Akohata is not long into his PhD, his research in this area actually started two years ago. At the end of 2019, he began a summer scholarship funded through the Resilience Challenge. That was with uh, Professor Karen Bryan at the University of Waikato, Dr Shari Gallup from the University of Waikato, and uh, Dr Scott Stevens from Niwa. And that was looking at um, understanding the proximity of marae, or traditional Māori meeting houses, to the coast as well as to river bodies. Um, we also looked at their elevation above sea level, and we also looked at their slope. So what did the topography look like between the marae and the coast? Was there dune in front of the marae, um, creating a barrier between? Or was it very low-lying, so that during flood events that marae potentially could be inundated? And he has continued along this research theme. So that project really was the start of what's ended up now through my PhD. And then the master's project looked at the exposure to sea level rise. So that was feeding off the data set that we produced through the um, summer scholarship, which then the masters looked at exposure to a 100-year annual recurrence interval extreme sea level event with increment rise of sea level added on. So that's similar to, you know, you hear a 100-year flood event in the news, it's similar to that with sea level rise increments increased on top of that. And that exposure sort of gave us an idea of how many marae were potentially exposed to sea level rise. And then this feeds into my PhD, which is now looking at, okay, we know what the issue is, we know where these marae are, what can we do about it? So looking more towards solutions, and um, especially in terms of legislation, what sort of legislation is out there for marae to use in terms of sea level rise and their exposure to flooding and erosion. Akuata worked with the Māori Maps database collected by Te Pōtiki National Trust. From 776 marae in the database, he said about identifying those that were close to the coast. We can find that to just within one kilometre of the coastline for my masters. That found 191 marae. And then we narrowed that down to understand, OK, so how many of these coastal marae are exposed to sea level rise? So then that narrowed it down to 41 coastal marae that are potentially exposed to a 100-year flood event with sea level rise added on to that. So, yeah, it sort of started big and narrowed it down through the exposure. Um, And within that 41 coastal marae that we found potentially exposed, six of those marae were potentially exposed at current mean sea level. So as you increase the sea level, more marae are potentially exposed. That doesn't factor in... um, processes of erosion or relative sea level rise, which is changes in mean sea level relative to a vertical datum on the land. So in New Zealand we're so tectonically dynamic that we have a lot of incidences of subsidence and uplift that if we take that into account as well, those numbers could be far worse than we are detected through my masters. It's really um, important that with 
the arrival of new data sets, so like the vertical land movement data that's coming out at the moment uh, in terms of sea level rise, it's really important to include that in the exposure so we have a full understanding of the, for the context of New Zealand what is going to happen to our marae. In terms of looking at which marae were at risk from these one in 100 year storm events, Akuata used a data set from Niwa. This data set takes historical tide gauge data and uses it to model what could happen in the future under different sea level rise scenarios. So it works upwards in 10 centimetre increments up to an extreme of three metres of sea level rise. Of course, there will be many coastal buildings potentially exposed to these kind of extreme events in the coming years. Why focus on marae? So it all started with my summer project and the origin of that summer project from my supervisors, Karen, Scott and Shari, was that they've, in their own rights, their research has encountered um, marae that have had issues with sea level rise, coastal flooding, coastal erosion. So they sort of started to think, you know, maybe we should start looking at the exposure of marae to coastal flooding and erosion and add on sea level rise to see what their exposure is. So they sort of started off the whole idea of looking at marae. But the reason why it is so important to look at the exposure of these marae is that marae is so important not only culturally and um, spiritually for Māori, but they're also important for non-Māori as well. Often marae are used as civil defence emergency evacuation sites. So they're places where people go in times of disaster and in times of need. So we need to understand how we can protect these sites for future generations as well as for Māori and non-Māori. The 41 marae that Akuata mentions here at risk is when he ran the model with the extreme of 3 metres sea level rise. These marae are located either by the coast or at the edges of estuaries. And this makes a difference too, he says. We um, classified coastal marae based on their coastal geomorphology. So that's a flash sciencey word for saying, what type of coastline are you situated in? Are you in an estuary or are you in a, on the open coast, right? And those systems react differently to a rise in sea level. So... We found that most marae, I believe it was 72 coastal marae, were found within a shallow drowned valley. So that's another fancy word for it, estuary. So their um, responses to sea level rise will be different. So within an estuary, you may have loss of intertidal flats and intertidal ecosystems. That can have an impact on mahinga kai, or traditional food gathering sites of marae, as well as you have um, inundation of low-lying land within an estuary with sea level rise. If we compare to the next common geomorphology of coastal marae, which was a coastal embayment, often termed pocket beaches or coves, these systems are really interesting. They had 41 coastal marae found within a coastal embayment, and these systems respond to a rise in sea level by um, inundation, so coastal flooding. But what was really interesting was that sea level rise plays a greater role in terms of um, wave direction. So within a coastal embayment, wave entry is very selective in the way it goes. And with sea level rise, that could potentially change. Now, if the wave direction changes, you can have a shoreline planform change. So within a coastal embayment, you could have one end of the embayment being, say, in an erosive state, and the other um, end of the embayment being a, an accretive state, so it's growing instead of eroding. If the wave direction changes, 
that could be flipped. So where it was eroding, it is now accreting, and where it was accreting, it is now eroding. And that's really important in terms of where marae position within these embayments. If a marae is positioned where it's historically been accreting for the past, I don't know how many years, and if that changes and then becomes erosive, that, prov- uh, that produces a whole nother set of complications for that marae. So that was really interesting to find out and potentially take into account when solutions for these marae started to be discussed among the hapu and the iwi. So what role does geomorphology play and what solutions we need to enact? Now that his master's work has helped clarify the problem, Akuata has started on his PhD to help investigate what the solution might be. The, the PhD is looking more towards solutions, but it's also looking at the solution of managed retreat. Now with the impending RMA, Resource Management Act reform that's happening in New Zealand, um, they're planning to bring in um, three new acts. The act that is really important to my research, the Climate Change Adaptation Act, is set to manage and fund managed retreat. Now, we want to understand what that looks like for Marae, because often managed retreat globally has been ad hoc, so it's been on the fly, and it's also been um, in response to a natural hazard event. So that can often, um, less time to make effective decisions means that it um, can be worse off in the future, right? Because time hasn't been put into place, it hasn't been anticipatory in terms of a, of a hazard event occurring. So it's really important to understand what managed retreat looks like for Māori going into the future, because often managed retreat can almost be um, a one-size-fits-all approach, right? We're going to manage retreat um, everyone the same way, but the thing is is that that's not that's not going to be effective for Māori communities or marae because the relationship and the connection that they have to that marae is different to, say, a connection a non-Māori person has to their um, rental property, or you know. It's a whole different idea of connection. So, say, having a one-size-fits-all approach isn't as effective because it's not taking into account that relationship. So what, what sort of mechanisms will be in place for place attachment or um, maintaining those relationships with that land if a marae does have to be um, relocated? So it's understanding what that looks like. And it's a really hard question because managed retreat is very colonial in its, um, in its, uh, in its standing, you know. It installs historic memories of, you know, land confiscations and forced removals. So Māori are often really hesitant to even discuss the idea of managed retreat because it's very colonial. So we need to be cognizant of that and be aware that that shouldn't be reiterated into a climate change future, that those historical wrongs shouldn't be reinstated going into a climate change future. It's really important. Currently, Akuata is building relationships with different hapu and iwi so that they can learn and share knowledge in how to prepare for the future. We're hoping to use that history of past relocations because relocations have happened in the past of Māori communities. Like, you're not going to stay in a spot if you're constantly getting flooded, right? You're going to all decide, okay, it's time to move. Um, How are we going to do it? When are we going to do it? There's a whole system to it. So we want to understand what does it look like for Māori in the past? How did they do it? Why did they do it? Where did they do it? When did they do it? 
So understanding and owning that sort of mātauranga in terms of how how we can use it going into a climate change future is really important. So forming those connections with hapū and iwi are really important in terms of understanding their mātauranga or Māori knowledge that they have and um, bringing it into the future with climate change for the betterment of their people. Thanks to Akuata Bailey Winiata, PhD student at the Coastal Marine Group, University of Waikato. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench. Thanks to Justin Gregory for editing help. Tim Watkin is the executive producer of Podcasts and Series. You can find and follow Our Changing Worlds on your favourite podcast platform. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash and if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.